We begin our new series in the book of Daniel, entitled Fearless. Uh, told you recently I was in New York City, and one of the fun parts of New York City is all the side street act. You've ever walk along Manhattan, or you've ever go to the subways, uh, and there there's a lot of musicians who play for free, or actually they pay, play for tips. Uh, there, are, there are magicians, uh, side street shows, there are what we call living statues, you know, people who stand still and why in the world would you give people who stand still money? I have no idea. Uh, but you know what I'm talking about. Them. They have it in Hong Kong and Singapore as well. So it's a lot of fun and a lot of, uh, uh, it's really neat just, just to see what they're doing. But this time I was really convicted. Uh, I was convicted as I was walking around. I, I saw a lot of people who, who were standing on the street corner and they were there passing out tracks. I thought, Christian tracks, I'll grab a few. wonder what group they're from. I was very surprised when I realized that these weren't Christian groups at all. These were cults like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, these were of other religions like uh, uh, from the Brotherhood of uh, Islam and, 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 and Buddhist groups. Uh, and they were there on the sidewalk street passing them out to people who would take one. I even saw people stand up on a street corner and, and begin to preach. And I noticed how as thousands of people walked by them, some of them were uh, jeering, some of them were cursing, as in typical New York fashion, get out of my way, I'm in a hurry. Uh, and some of them were, were just there being very rude. What struck me was that these people didn't care. They didn't care if people took it and immediately threw it down on the floor and stepped on it. These people didn't care if people jeered them and, and cursed them. They continued to do what they were doing. What convicted me, and I felt very ashamed about this, was I realized that I couldn't do this. If I was to ask to be stand, uh, to, 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 if I was asked to stand at a street corner and, and preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, I couldn't do it. I don't think I could take the abuse. I don't think I could take, honestly, the cursing and the jeering. I would be severely offended if I handed out a track and someone took it and just threw it on the floor immediately in front of my face. Might as well not take one. And I felt very ashamed because I realized I was afraid. Yes, even as a pastor, I was afraid. I was afraid of rejection. And I wondered why it is that these people who have the false gospel, the false good news, Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And yet these people who don't have the truth are so adamant and, are so, and so passionate and so bold about their faith. And I, who have the faith, and who, who, who has the truth of the gospel, I'm so ashamed. In terms of a learning process for me as well, I could think of no better person than Daniel, who in his time was in a foreign land with people he did not know, with a culture and a religion that was against his. And yet from the beginning to the end, he stood literally fearless. It is time for us as Christians to stop being afraid, to stop living in fear. Yes, we are safe in the confines of this church, but when we go out, we, we live very 
fearful lives. We, we live very defeated as if someone finds out that we are believers, strong believers. Then somehow we are less of a people. We as Christians are not willing to step out of our comfort zone to, to live the Christian life that the Scriptures calls us to live. Or when people challenge us in our Christian faith, we pull back ashamed. Or when we go into a situation that's very difficult, we willingly compromise our faith just so that we would not rock the boat, just so we wouldn't be different, just so we would be part of the group. We compromise. It's been my prayer these past few days that as we study this wonderful book together, that not only will our faith be strengthened, which it should be every week, but that we would learn how to be bold. We would boldly proclaim our faith. It is my prayer, I hope, that at the end of this study in the book of Daniel, each one of us will be able to stand at the street corner when asked, if called, and be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear, without shame. And so let's begin. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Daniel is in the Old Testament. It's part of the major prophet section, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, and then there we hit Daniel. Daniel, chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we are given a historical background of what is happening when this book opens. It reads in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, Shinar being an ancient name for Babylon to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Here, what has happened is that as we open the book of Daniel, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, has been conquered by the Babylonians. Let's go back a few hundred centuries when God set for the people of Israel a Mosaic covenant. He set with his people an agreement, a covenant, a Mosaic covenant, which he gave Succinctly in Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 30, he says to his people, If you will obey me, I will bless you. But if you disobey me, I will bring discipline to you. Simple enough. If you follow my ways, if you obey me, obedience will lead to blessings. Disobedience will lead to discipline. The Bible uses the word curse. Such simple a principle to live by, yet the Israelites did not live it out. After Solomon, the third king of united Israel, the nation broke into two. The northern part was called Israel, and they did not walk in the ways of God. And in 722, historically, God sent the Assyrian army to conquer it. And there the people were scattered and exiled. The southern kingdom of Judah had a few good kings, but those good kings did not overcome the sinfulness of the people. After countless reminders and countless prophets, they continued to sin. And God finally said, enough is enough. I give you enough chances. He was patient, but his patience wore out. And so in 586 B.C., God raised up the Babylonian army 
And God raised the empire of Babylon to come and to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the verse 1 and 2 tells us that the Babylonians conquered Judah and they took back with them all the treasures of Solomon's temple. Things like the Ark of the Covenant, the golden candlestick, all were taken back to Babylon and most likely burned, uh, melted down for its gold. Destroyed the temple. But there was more that they brought back with them to Babylon. Look at verse 3 to verse 4. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuch, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. He had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans being an ancient name for the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar was very smart. He instructed his chief of staff, the the master of his eunuchs, to go and and go throughout Judah and and look at the noble families, the princes of Judah, and to bring with them to Babylon these good-looking young men. Now, you can call them hostages. You can call them captives. But don't feel too bad about them. We're going to tell you why. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar was very smart. He was in charge of, a, uh, at that time, the largest empire in the world, in the known world. And he had a lot of conquered nations who were not very happy with him. But he sought to placate them by assimilating them into the Babylonian culture. He wanted to turn them Babylonian. And so he would take all the nobles of all the conquered nations, especially the kids, the younger ones, he'd bring them to Babylon and he would train them to assimilate them to the culture. And therefore, if some of his conquered lands ever got angry, too angry with him to rise up in revolt, they would see that they had a few of their own in the king's palace who were treated very well. And they could also serve as emissaries and ambassadors to placate the people, not to be so angry, because you know what? The Babylonian empire was pretty good. These children, these young people, probably 14 to 16 year olds, were taken away from their parents. That may be the sad part. But now they were taken to the most powerful person in the entire known world at that time and to his very courts. Not as slaves, but to serve as royal ministers and royal counselors. You see, to be selected was quite a good thing. It was as if you were taken out of the provinces, out of abject poverty and brought to Malakanyan Palace to live there. It's quite a treat. If you remember the book of Nehemiah, if you've read it, when they were sent back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah gives a description of the wasteland that was the promised land. People were living in poverty. And so what King Nebuchadnezzar did was take them out of poverty and brought them to the very courts of his. They had their career path set. Man, these were lucky, lucky guys. They were taken to the capital of the strongest empire in the world and they would be given the best training in all the world. The Babylonians were known for their advancement in the sciences and astrology and astronomy and the languages. You name it, they had it. This was the culture that invented the modern road system. This was the culture that invented irrigation to its maximum potential. Uh, One of the seven ancient wonders of the world were the hanging gardens of Babylon. 
These were uh, the people who discovered mathematic principles before Pascal ever had them. These were people who studied the stars and knew it so well. You remember the birth story of Jesus? The wise men from the east? Most scholars believe that the wise men of the east came from this area of the Near East. They knew their heavens well. And they had their career set. As long as they do not rock the boat. As long as they tow the line. As long as they were obedient and they listened, these nobles would have the cushiest of jobs. They'd be given the most beautiful women. They'd be given the most beautiful homes. They'd be given the beautiful jobs. I mean, they had it set. Just don't rock the boat. Toe the line. Go with the flow. Look what the king of Babylon did for them. Verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them. So at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. The king gave them everything, spared no expenses, the best food, the best wines in all the world. Think of it as the Harvard of that time, a three-year MBA program. All they had to do was sit and learn. They didn't have to work for a job. They didn't have to work for their food. And the elite from all over the world, the elite from all the conquered nations of Babylon, the nobility was there. And even the nobles of Babylonia. And there they would go together to learn about culture and of language. Man, they had the good life. The purpose, as you know, was to transform these young Jewish men into Babylonians. New ideas, new customs, even new names. Look at verse 6. Now from among these of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. If you in the Bible ever see a name that ends with L, like Daniel, you know that their name has a biblical meaning in response to Yahweh. El meant God. Elohim, El Shaddai. These four had names that reflected their love for the living God, Yahweh, or at least their parents' love and following of the living God, Yahweh. But the chief of the eunuchs, verse 7, changes their names. Because we weren't going to have the living God, Yahweh. That's a Jewish God, they said. We want them to, to worship the Babylonian gods. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Mishael. And to Azariah, Abednego. Even though their four original names bore and honored Yahweh's name, they were changed. Daniel means, Daniel means God is my judge. But he was changed to Belteshazzar means, Bel protects my life. The Babylonian god, Bel, is the one who protects my life. Hananiah means, the Lord shows grace. But a new name, Shadrach, means I am under the command of Aku. Aku was the moon god of Babylon. Mishael means who is like God? Who is as great as the living God, Yahweh? His new name, Mishak, means who is as great as Aku, the moon god? Azariah means the Lord is my help. The Lord God, Yahweh, will help me. Abednego means servant of Nebo. Nebuchadnezzar, servant of Nebo, the Babylonian god. Now you say, whoa, what a big radical change. But you know, for Daniel and his three friends, learning the culture wasn't a problem. Learning a new language, the Akkadian language wasn't a problem. Even getting new names, what's in a name, right? But there was one thing that him and his three friends could not do. 
if they were going to remain faithful to God. There was one thing they could not do. And you know the story well. They could not eat the food of the Babylonians. They could not. Let me ask you this. If you've got teenagers or if you're in that age range, if you're a 14 to 16-year-old young man before you've discovered girls, what's the one focus that you have in life? It's usually food. It's about food. It's not even quality. It's about quantity, how much you can get. All right, if you've got teenagers, young men, young boys, man, your food bill goes up. And here you had four young men who were away from their parents, who were brought the best food of the land. I'm talking best food of the land. And they were reminded that if they were to follow Yahweh, they could not eat this food. What would you do? Probably stink a few bites in. God will understand, we say. What would you do? You see, if you put yourself in their shoes, you realize it's not so easy. Conformity to the world is very easy. As long as I didn't rock the boat, as long as I went with the flow, life would be very good. But Daniel and his three friends could not go along with the flow. If they wanted to honor God, they could not follow the culture of the Babylonians. They were going to have to rock the boat. You see, there's a call for us, whether to be conformers or to be transformers, not the ones that change from cars to robots, but the ones that transform people's lives. Are you a conformer or are you a transformer? According to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Conformers are people whose lives are controlled by the pressures of the world. Do not be conformed by the things of the world, Paul says. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformers are people whose lives are controlled from the power within. Perhaps a better illustration of this, as I've used before, is are you a thermometer or are you a thermostat? You know what the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat is? A thermometer is where you use it to take your temperature. In the old school, the mercury goes up and down based on your body's temperature. Whatever your body's temperature is, the thermometer will change. The thermostat, you set the temperature, like an air-conditioned thermostat. You set the, change, uh, the temperature, and the air condition changes the environment to the temperature that you have set. And so the question is, are we conformers like a thermometer? Are we transformers like a thermostat? When we walk into the group of friends that we have, when we walk into our place of work, our place of business, when we walk into our family's life, do we quickly conform to the standards of this world? Or when we step into that group, does that group change? Do you transform or do you conform? Daniel and his three friends were transformers. Instead of being changed, they did the changing. And the, the beautiful study about this book is that God will use them to transform the minds of the most powerful people in the world at that time to bring great glory to his name, even in a pagan land. That is what you can do if you're willing to step forth and do what God calls you to do. Now, since we're on the topic of food, 
you know that there are many types of diets out there, and I have a lot of their books. The Atkins diet, the South Beach diet, the Scarsdale diet for those of a generation past, the protein diet, the eat whatever you want but in moderation diet. And all these diets have a lot of different steps that you have to follow. I want to propose to you this morning the Daniel diet. Three simple steps. Not for how you can get lean, but how you can stand fearless. Three steps in the Daniel diet. Step number one, verse eight. But Daniel, note this, purposed, resolved, determined in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Would you circle the word purposed, underline it, highlight it, however it's translated in your Bible, purpose, resolve, determine. Step number one of the Daniel diet, resolution, resolve. You see, the one thing that Daniel and the three friends could not do was they could not eat the Babylonian food. Why? Because it did not conform with the Mosaic law of which he was to be obedient to. It was prepared by Gentile hands, meaning it rendered it unclean. There were probably many foods that were prohibited in the book of Leviticus that were brought before him. Most likely, most of this royal food had been presented and offered to an idol. And Exodus chapter 34 verse 15 says, To partake in such food for that dispensation, for that economy was wrong. The Jews were forbidden to eat flesh, sacrificed to bacon gods. Similarly, another problem with the fine wines. The Bible did not prohibit the drinking of wine. But for the Old Testament Jews, there was a prohibition against drinking strong drinks. And so the Jews would often customarily dilute wine with water. Six parts water to one part wine. Ten parts water to one part wine. We know that the Babylonian wine was strong. They did not dilute that thing. In fact, uh, in one drunken party, the clown king, Belshazzar, we'll get, that, we'll get to there in chapter 5. He lost the kingdom because all of his friends were partying wildly, getting drunk. They were so drunk that the Persian army literally was able to sail unnoticed through the Euphrates River and conquer this once unconquerable land. Daniel said, I can't do this. I can't obey God and be faithful to him and eat and drink the things that are brought before me. And so he resolved. He said, I will do it. You know, if he was not resolute... If there was no resolution of his heart, it was so easy to follow the ways of his friends. He could just simply say, well, everyone's doing it. It's the only food they provided. There's 101 justification why we did it. Everyone's doing it. Daniel says, we can't be everyone. That's what he resolved. We can't be everyone. We serve the Lord God, Yahweh. Can you imagine a young man of 16 making a resolution such as that? He says, I will not disobey the law. I will be obedient to God. I will be faithful to Him. I will honor Him with my life. Young people, do not think that you are too young to make a resolution such as that. You think your life is hard. You think it's hard to live in your culture. Daniel had it hard. He didn't have his parents to fall back to. He was in a foreign land as a captive 
And you better eat the food that's brought out to you. You better not rock waves or make waves. But the Bible says he resolved in his heart not to defile himself. My friends, the reason so many of us are so scared and we don't live lives of Christian testimonies because we have not resolved to do anything. We've accepted Christ as our personal Savior. Great, wonderful. But we've made no resolution that says, you know what? I will live my life uncompromised. I will not compromise my faith. I will be faithful. And if we are not resolved, then we will capitulate. We will cave in when the first sign of pressure is there. What have you resolved in your life that you will not do for the sake of the Lord? What in your life are you not willing to compromise? Even though everyone's doing it, what have you resolved? You know, if you don't resolve, you will not carry out. Just think of dieting. A lot of you have been dieting. I've been on dieting. And the hardest part of dieting is if you don't resolve to lose weight, your diet lasts about a day. It gets too hard. If you don't resolve the temptation, the pressure, the old lifestyle comes in. You know, one of the phenomenons, I don't know what it is, but late at night around 10 or 11 o'clock when it's a little cooler, the air condition has made the room cool, you're getting a little sleepy, that's the time you get really hungry. Nothing is better than about 10 or 11 o'clock having a bag of chip in one hand, having a Coke in another, and just plopping yourself on a nice couch and watch TV till you fall asleep. You know what I'm talking about? That's a great feeling. Dr. Tan was my um, translator at the 9 o'clock service, and I shared a story. I, I said that, you know, we have the same tendencies. Because oftentimes, because he's at the school and I'm at the church, oftentimes at about 10 o'clock our, our door buzzer will ring. And it will be the guard bringing half a pizza to me. He's ordered one half, and he's shared the other half with me. And we'd enjoy it together at 11 o'clock at night. So we're still working. But it feels so good. And sometimes if the pizza doesn't come, my wife knows. Instinctively, I always walk out. I always just open the ref. I'll open the refrigerator. I don't know why. Just open. Just look around. Close it back. I go back out again and open it again, look around. We didn't go to the store in five minutes, but as if something will magically appear there. But it's just a force of habit. You open and you look. If you don't resolve anything, then you easily fall into temptation. Later on, we're going to talk about Daniel and the lion's den, stories you've heard before. Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. Daniel having to tell the king, the mightiest man in the world, that he's going to have to eat grass. Why would you want to tell the king that? But at a very young age, young Daniel had resolved, I will be faithful to God. I will not compromise. I will speak with truth. I will be true to myself. And it is that resolve that will mark his life to the very end. Step one, resolve. Step two, verse nine and ten. Now Daniel had brought, excuse me. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, "I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces longing worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king." 
Step two, ask for help. Step two in the Daniel diet for becoming fearless in your faith, ask for help. Daniel could not do it by himself. He was a captive. He had to eat the food that was provided for him. And so he would have to ask for help. He asked the chief court official to be excused from eating the food brought to him. You got to ask. If you don't ask, you never get. He was courageous enough to ask. Now understand here in verse 10 that the chief of the eunuchs, the chief official, the chief of staff did not grant Daniel's request. If you read your Bible carefully, he did not grant the request. He said, my life's on the line. If I do this for you, I might die. Because if you lose weight, that's my responsibility. The king thinks very highly of you. He, he wants to put you in a ministerial position. That's my job on the line. I can't do it. I'm sorry. But you know, here's the cool thing. Daniel did not take no for an answer. Look at verse 11. So Daniel said to the steward, a different person, the guard, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servant for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Daniel was resolute, but he would not let one know affect his conviction. And so the chief of the eunuchs said no. So he went to his guards. Would you just give me ten days? I just need ten days. I know your job's on the line, but I'm not going to request forever. Just ten days to see how I will look. We will look. After we eat only vegetables. Daniel exhausted all of his means in asking for help. He didn't simply capitulate and say, well, you know what? They said no. I guess not. I'm sorry, God. I really tried. They said no. Let me tell you this. When you invite someone to church, usually their reaction is about a hundred different excuses and they say no. You know what? We often never ask again. When was the last time you asked someone invited uh, you asked someone to church? Thirty years ago. Well, they said no, Pastor. They said no. I, I know they don't want to come. Now, how in the world can you answer to God when He asks you? How come you never invited them to church or to walk in fellowship with you? I asked them, God, but they said no. Did you ask them again? No, because they said no. Sorry. We cop out at the first sign of struggle. Daniel went. And sought other means. He exhausted all of his means. He went out of the limb. You don't ever get what you do not ask. And a lot of young people, or a lot of people in general, struggle with living out their Christian faith in the midst of their Chinese culture. Whether it's November 1 or at funerals or whatever else, they are compelled, they think. They are made to, to go burn incense. Uh, to pay respects and whatnot, and there are a lot of implications about that. And a lot of them come to me and say, Pastor, I don't know what to do. I'm really struggling with this. I'm put into a, a very difficult position. And I always ask a question to them is, have you ever asked to beg off? Have you ever asked your parents or your grandparents, because of my faith in Jesus Christ, could I show my respect in a different way? And you've got to ask nicely. And most people say, no, I don't say no. I, I know them. You don't know my parents. Have you tried? A lot of them don't. If you never ask, you never get. There are a lot of people who ask, and to their surprise, they don't have to do those things. 
we in the Christian walk cannot do it alone. We must ask for help. We need accountability. We ask of God and we ask of others. And after we ask, what do we do? Step three in the Daniel diet, verse 14. We see God work. We see God work. Verse 14. So he consented with them on this matter and tested them for 10 days. When Daniel asked, he couldn't do anything. The only thing he could do was to watch God work. And God worked in the hearts of this guard. I can't wait to to preach on uh, Daniel and the lion's den. I know you've heard the story before, but man, oh man. It's tough sometimes to see God at work. Because the way we want God to work is no lion at all. Not being thrown into the pit, not being thrown into the fire. But God doesn't work like that in many ways. He puts us into the pit, face to face with the lion. He throws us into the fire and he says, watch me work. But we never get to that part because we are never willing to stand up to watching God at work. See God work. Verse 10, verse 15. At the end of 10 days, their feature appeared better. Notice, fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. At the end of 10 days, the Bible tells us Daniel and his three friends looked better than all the rest. Sometimes we read that and we say, oh, we've heard the story. Yeah, you know, maybe they ate a lot of vegetables. I don't know. I've never seen a fat vegetarian. You go on diets when you eat a bunch of vegetables. You want to get fat, you eat a lot of fatty meats. There is no way to manipulate this thing. Daniel didn't say, oh, you know what? I snuck in some meat, friends. Let's eat so that we'll look fatter at the end of 10 days. No. This is totally, we say the word, a God thing. The Bible tells us the four looked better. No worse. They even looked better. And so they were allowed to continue on a diet of vegetables and water. They saw God at work. But not only them, all those around them. And we'll see that as well in this series. God blesses those who obey His commands. He prospers. He blesses people who trust Him. God uses this private test in the lives of these young people to prepare them for the public test that is to happen. You know, the best thing about this incident wasn't that they didn't compromise their faith. You know what the best thing about this incident was that they began to develop in their character of fearlessness. This is a small thing compared to obeying a decree of the king. It's pretty small. Okay, well, it's meat. Who cares? But they develop in their character a realization that to stand fearless, they must resolve. They must ask God to help and others, and they will see God at work. God looked at them and said, I can use these four. 
and I'm going to bless them. God blesses those who are fearless, who are willing to stand up to him. Look what, it, look, look what he did for them. Verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. They got more. They got from God great wisdom. They aced every test. And Daniel has a special gift of understanding visions and dreams. And we'll talk about that in the prophetic passages portions, which is so relevant in our time today when we get to chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Look at verse 18. Here comes the day of the test. Now at the end of the day, at the end of three years, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Here was their board exam. Three years of information accumulated. This was going to determine their job. Where they would be placed in the kingdom. What role they would have. Verse 19. The king personally interviewed each one of them. The king interviewed them. And among them, note this, all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Wow. When the king interviewed them, these were the four smartest guys, not only amongst the class, these were the four smartest guys in the entire nation. He found them ten times smarter than all the magicians. That's another word for advisors. It was a very mystical religion, the Babylonians. They were smarter than the astrologers, those who looked in the heavens and, and calculated stars and things like that. Usually, uh, the foreigners got farmed out. You know, when they were farmed out for uh, provisions of ministerial positions. A lot of them were sent back to the provinces. These four were so good. Look what the Bible says in verse 19. That the king kept them. And they served before the king. <coughs> king Nebuchadnezzar thought he was preparing these four for their, his royal court. But in actuality, they were being prepared by God to serve the king of kings. God blesses those who are fearless. Because of their testimony before the Lord, the Lord strategically placed them in the royal courts of the king. Because they were willing to stand firm as young people, they would stand firm before the king of the world. Because they serve the king of the universe. They would tell the king of Babylon. And they would tell the king of Persia. The greatest men in their time. About the greatest one in the world. How would you tell people who think that they are the king of kings. If you ever watch the movie 300. Xerxes. The Persian king. Referred to himself as the king of kings. Daniel's going to tell these guys, without fear, you are not the king of kings. One of you will eat grass. And God will so humble you that you will acknowledge the true king of kings. That is being fearless. And then the subnote in verse 21. 
Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. In the first chapter, we see that Daniel's life, from young all the way to 60-plus years of ministry, he was always faithful and he was always fearless. He would have the opportunity, as we're going to find out, to witness to Nebuchadnezzar, to King Darius, to King Pelbashazzar, to King Cyrus, and many of the other court officials who were there. And he would tell them how great his God was. Daniel would have no problem staying at the sidewalk of New York preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he has stood before kings. What about you? God has said in 1 Samuel 2.30, Those who honor me, I will honor God is looking for those who are faithful and He's looking for those who are fearless. And God honors and blesses those who are willing to take a stand for Him. Would you? If you are called to stand in the street corner of your neighborhood, literally or figuratively, would you take that challenge? Would you do it? Would you be able to stand when given the opportunity before your group of friends, when you make a speech and talk about God's work in your life, when you give a toast, when you appreciate whatever the opportunity that you are given, would you be able to speak about your faith in Jesus Christ and what God has done for you, would you? It's up to you. But it is my prayer that as we go through this study of this book, that we will learn from the fearless faith of Daniel so that we can be bold in our faith as well. Now, as we close, I just want to share with you one last challenge. Oftentimes when we speak through series, I allow you to apply it into your own life. But I want to do something different in this series a series entitled Fearless. I want to do a project together as a church. And th- this project, I want to call it the 168 Challenge. All of you are going to 168. It's Christmas time. You buy Christmas gifts there, gifts that last till January. And, and as you go there, I want to change your perspective. I call it the 168 Challenge. What is this challenge? I want all of us to be a part of it. Our staff is committed to it, and we're going to do it together. These three things may scare the living daylights out of you. You've never done it before. You've tried it. You've failed. But this is where you get to practically live out the principles that you learn through the Scriptures. One. The one in the 168. The one. I'd like you, and I'd like to challenge you, to invite one person to church. You say, I can do that. I invite them all the time. But here's the deal. They have to at least come once. One person invited and attends church. You got six months to do it. That's how long it will take to get through this series. You're like, really six months? Yeah, it's a long series. Twelve chapters. It's a good one. And so at the end of this series, would you be able to bring one person? That may require you picking them up. That may require you making a deal with them. Hey, I'll treat you to a steak dinner if you come to church with me. You know, you bribe people to come watch a movie. You, 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 you force people to sing karaoke with you. 
I don't know what you do to get people to come with you, but you have your means. I want you to invite one person and make sure that they come and attend church. They don't have to stay, just come once. The six. I'd like you to make six new friends in this church. As we grow in size, the challenge is that fewer and fewer people get to know one another. They're all spread across five different services. But I'd like you to make six new friendships. Six people you didn't know before. All right? And, and, and you're not going to be the only one. People won't think you weird if you stick out your hand and say, Hi, my name is Steve. What's your name? We're all going to do this together. And you've got six months to do this. I mean, that's pretty easy. And I'll give you a throw in a few freebies. You know, I'll, I'll have you all shake each other's hand before the sermon or something. And I'll give you a few freebies. Okay, but don't, don't count on that. Six. Six friendships that you don't know. And at the end of that, you'll get to... You've got to know their names, too, because I may call upon some of you, put you on the spot, and some of you are trembling in fear. I won't tell you when. And I'll ask you to list those six names for me. Finally, ushers, would you pass out this next one? Uh, I have asked that business cards of the church be made out. Uh, You are to get eight of them. Eight of them. Okay? Now, I'd like you, within these six months, to pass out eight cards. Okay? Eight cards. I pass out about 30 of my own cards a month. Just people I meet. What's eight? What's eight? Now, I'm not talking about give it to the waiter who serves you at the restaurant this afternoon. Okay? These are people that you want to invite. These are people that you want to know about this church. You say, you know what? This is my card. You know, great. And by the way, you know, this is the church I go to. If you've got time, uh, the services are listed in the back. Uh, the website's on there. And would you pass out eight of them? Strategically, pray about it first. Eight of them. You got the opportunity. I mean, Christmas is coming up. All those Christmas parties. People you haven't met. Old Gratians and whatnot. Pass it out. If you need more, we have a lot more at the office. Cemetery, November 1 when you go. Instead of just eating. Hey, by the way, you know, I'd like to invite you this weekend. Here's a card. You know, we tell people our five services. They won't remember. They need something written. So the 168 challenge. Then you say, oh, Pastor... I can't do this. I'm happy just to come and to listen. Well, guess what? In this series, I'm going to make you really uncomfortable if we just sit and listen. Because I want you to practically live out the principles. I want you, step one, to resolve. I will do this. You got to make a resolution because if you don't, six months is going to go by and you would not have done a thing. I resolve to do it. Step two, I'm going to need some help. Pray. Ask God, God, would you give me the strength? Would you help me? Ask someone else. Ask some of the ministers. I don't know how to invite someone to church. I don't know. I'm socially awkward. We'll give you grooming tips. We'll tell you how to shake hand like a man. I'll teach you that. Come and ask. I don't think anyone's going to ask me about that, but I make the offer anyways. I'll tell you if your clothes look ugly. But more importantly, here's the exciting part. We're going to see God work. I have no idea what these cards will do. 
I have no idea what those friendships you make at this church. I have no idea about the person that you're going to bring to church. I don't know which week. We're not going to tailor it specifically for them to come. But this is an opportunity for you to see God work. And I cannot wait to hear the stories and the testimonies I know there will be. And this is not a rah-rah speech for me. But this is seeing God at work. And it's about high time that we see God at work. I see it at work all the time. But because we aren't doing a lot of stuff, you don't see God at work. I want you to see God at work. Sometimes God may work in very mysterious ways. You may get your door slammed. You may get that card thrown down. I don't know. I really don't. But I want you to see God work. You know what? I did the math. I'm excited. Man, 1,000 plus more people at the church is coming once. 6,000 plus new friendships. 8,000 cards passed out. And you know what? This is not for the church. This project is for you and me. And this project is for you and me to begin the path of becoming fearless for Him. I'm sorry, but if you can't pass business cards out that talk about the church you go to every week, then boy, you can't stand in the street corner and pass out tracts about the gospel of Christ. If you can't make six friendships with people who won't bite you back, then I'm sorry. But how in the world can you minister to the non-Christians out there? If you aren't willing to drive some person to church, what sort of sacrifice are you going to make when God calls you to be faithful to Him? So this is very much a challenge for you. And I'm so excited because I know that if you do it prayerfully, you're going to see God work. And I conclude, and I was laughing last night because... I said to myself, if God can make a vegetarian fat, then God can do amazing things. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the challenge of Daniel, the example that he set on how to live a life that is fearless. Would you forgive my sins? Would you forgive me? when I have disappointed you, when I have been too fearful to talk about my faith and have stood firm when the pressures came. I want to be a Daniel. I want to stand firm and I want to stand fearless. I want to be able to stand before the kings of this world, even the paupers of this world, and equally share about the king of the universe. Work in the lives of the people this morning. Allow them to be challenged to live fearless lives. In Jesus' name we pray.